Let's get just a running head start. Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Following the first three verses, which establishes an overall vision and intention of the book, as well as kind of a benediction there in verse 3. Starting with verse 4, however, we're kind of provided a more formal, official introduction. Well, on parchment, you know, a a typical book, you would sign a a letter. You would leave your signature at the end. That's what we typically do. You write an email, you drop your name at the end. With a scroll, which is what the book of Revelation was originally written on because of just the way you read it, it was important to leave your signature, your moniker, at the beginning. And so John here, right from the beginning, he lets us know who's the author, who penned. Now, there's little debate that John, the Apostle John, Uh, wrote the book of Revelation. He also penned a gospel under his name, as well as three other letters. John is the author. Biographically, if you don't know anything about John, he and his brother James had grown up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee fishing with their father Zebedee. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called them to be his disciples. Later on, each of these men, James and John, would find themselves being picked to be one of the twelve apostles, the A-team, and then later, they also, along with Peter, would make up Jesus' kind of inner circle, his closest circle of confidants. Unique to the others, likely because John was the youngest of the group, and interestingly, a cousin of Jesus, he would come to possess a kind of particular closeness with the Lord. Jesus uh, kept kept him to his side. Not only does John describe himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. But from the cross, Jesus would entrust the care of his mother Mary to this young man. Church history says that John would care for Mary, would be her sole caregiver, until she ultimately went to heaven. Furthermore, verse 4 tells us who the audience is. We're given the the author and audience. The book is addressed, quote, to the seven churches in Asia. In the first century, what we would consider to be Asia isn't, isn't so. It's not the same thing. Asia was actually an official Roman province located in what is today, present-day Turkey. In other places, you will find this area referred to as Asia Minor or Asia the Less or referred to as the region of Galatia. I mentioned last Sunday that before being arrested by Emperor Domitian, and ultimately exiled to the island of Patmos, John had been the lead pastor of this influential church of Ephesus, 
a church that had been founded by the Apostle Paul and pastored by another hero of the faith, a man named Timothy. You should note that position being the lead pastor of the church of Ephesus would also make John the overseer of six additional congregations that were located in basically about a 50-mile radius, with Ephesus being the heart. These cities would include Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It's logical that John would write to this collection of believers because he was their pastor. John begins with the traditional, customary salutation of the New Testament writers. Grace and peace. You know, the simple truth is that without the grace of God, there could be no peace with God. I mean, imagine for a minute, if your relationship with God and your status in heaven was completely dependent, not on God's grace, but on your performance. I mean, from day to day, you would be questioning, was I good enough today? I mean, if it was based on you, I, there would be no peace, no security. It would be dicey from day in and day out. Jesus, are we good? Uh, I'll throw some Hail Marys. Will that make it all right? Now, grace and peace. Without God's grace, there is no peace. Also notice that this amazing grace and lasting peace comes or, or literally manifests from three individual sources. We're told that in our text. First, it comes from him who is, he who exists presently, and who was or exists formally, and who is to come or exists eternally. And this John, he's referencing the eternal, timeless nature of God the Father. In fact, if you get into the original language, he might be dropping clues. It's very wonky the way that he writes this, dropping clues to Jehovah. This is his best attempt to reference the Old Testament God, God the Father, Jehovah Jireh. As David Guzik writes in his commentary, he says, As Lord over eternity, God rules the past, He rules the present, and He rules the future. Just as we sang. Secondly, this grace and peace that we so wonderfully experience also comes from, we're told, the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now that seems kind of like a really odd portrayal of the Holy Spirit. But again, I'm, I mentioned this in our lead-in. John builds off of Old Testament pictures, Old Testament references, Old Testament scenes. And so what he's doing is he's describing, yes, the Holy Spirit, but he's referring back to the description of the Spirit presented in Isaiah 11, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit is articulated, presented, personified as having seven unique characteristics. He's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So we have the, the Father, we have the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, there is no doubt, no question really, that grace and peace could not exist if it hadn't come from Jesus Christ, or more accurately, Jesus the Christ. Like, I, I hope you know, and I, I don't want to make an assumption, that this phrase, Jesus Christ, doesn't refer to Jesus' first and last name. You know, so, some people kind of think that, Jesus Christ, well, that's his name. And not really. It's his title. It's his name and title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the promised one. Jesus the one and only Savior of the world. It's Jesus and his title. John now pivots 
Father, Spirit, Jesus, the source of this grace and peace, now pivots after introducing Jesus to a description, really, of who Jesus is, as well as what Jesus has done. Look at it. He begins by saying Jesus is the faithful witness. I love that phrase, the faithful witness. This means that in Jesus, we have the truest or most accurate witness or person, personification of the heart of God. In his gospel, John, he opens his book by introducing Jesus the following way. He says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then 13 verses later, he adds that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. There is no disputing the fact that John, who knew Jesus well, viewed Him as the only physical manifestation of the triune God. If you happen to be a seeker, you're not really sure on this whole Christianity thing quite yet. You're interested. You're not sold. You're exploring. Looking for answers. I want to give you just for a moment a little advice. If you want to try out Thai food, I would recommend your first experience not be at a restaurant where the cook is from El Salvador. Just a little bit of advice. Instead, I'd recommend that you find a place owned and operated by immigrants from Thailand. If you want Thai food, find some immigrants from Thailand. Now, you might decide that you don't like Thai cuisine at all. But at least you can say that you've had an authentic, true representation and not a cheap, mediocre knockoff. Now, here's my point. Writing off God, the God of the Bible, because Christians are hypocrites and poor witnesses, is as silly as deciding that Thai food is terrible because the Tom Young goon dished up by Eduardo at Winder's Tie in a Box was cold, bland, and the shrimp rubbery. Because you made your ultimate determination about Thai food on possibly the poorest example of Thai food, in the end, you might actually be missing out on something that you might really enjoy. But Christians, I mean, let's be real. We do our best to represent God. I mean, we try. But the truth, if we're being real, is that more often than not, we fall very short in that endeavor. We try, but we fall short. You see, if, if Jesus is the deep dish meat lover supreme at Rocky's Pizzeria, I have no problems admitting that on my best day, I'm basically a Hot Pocket. <laughs> Serviceable. You're not sure if it's meat, but it's okay, as long as it's hot. If it gets cold, it's a brick. If Jesus is the deep dish, I'm kind of a pizza, maybe? A Hot Pocket. This is why, if you really want to know what the God of the Bible is really all about, the best place to look before you make a definitive decision 
It's not at me or other Christians. You should look at Jesus. Why? Because he is the faithful, the true, the authentic witness. You know, because of the witness of Jesus, no one standing in the final judgment will be able to blame their rejection of God on the poor witness of Christians. Because God will say, I sent my son, the faithful witness. I I think, if I can kind of build on this for just a moment, I think one of the great tragedies of American Christianity is is the accusation that Christians are hypocrites. Now, I don't blame you if you think Christians are hypocrites. Christians are often hypocrites. We kind of earn that. The problem with the accusation itself is that it's really unnecessary. Like a hypocrite is by definition someone that's playing a role or wearing a mask. A a hypocrite is a person whose identity, their real identity, doesn't match their public persona. Like they're a different person privately than they are publicly. You see, Christians don't become hypocrites the moment we sin and blow it. We become hypocritical the moment that we claim to be sinless and perfect. Again, it's, it's an unforced error. It's unnecessary. The Christian, it, it's, it's hard to be accused of being a hypocrite when the basis of your relationship with God is on Jesus' work and not yours. If your message is that your relationship with God is founded upon His goodness and not your worthiness, it's hard to be accused of hypocrisy. Like, my job on earth is to do one thing. It's to point you to Jesus. He's the standard. He's the faithful witness. All I am is a sin-prone earthling. No better than anyone else, apart from the grace that I just received from Jesus. If you're honest about your frailty, your fallenness, your brokenness, the fact that you're a work in progress, that I'm saved by Jesus, it's hard to be accused of hypocrisy. It's it's only when we try to present ourselves as, I've got it all together. I'm holy and I'm righteous. I'm perfect. I'm good. That's why God chose me. Get to know me. You'll figure it out. And then we fall, and it's like, you're a hypocrite. Be real. Let me give you a quick example of this. You know, you'd say that, you know, of all the Christians, you know, apart from Jesus, the Christ, you know, Paul had his act together. It's interesting, though, the further and longer he walked with Jesus, the less self-righteous he was and the more real and honest he was about himself. Just as an example, he writes to his friend Timothy in in, in, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, He writes, he says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Hallelujah. Then he adds, of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. I find that encouraging. Paul's perspective of himself. The further he walked with Jesus, the more he was aware how unlike Jesus he really was. You know, it's hard to accuse someone of being a hypocrite when they admit, I'm the chief of sinners. Jesus also is described here by John. 
aside from being the faithful witness, he's described as being the firstborn of the dead. In that culture, the title of firstborn not only enshrined the individual with a, a, a set of privileges, but it also bestowed to them a unique authority as the firstborn. As the first here to conquer death, firstborn from the dead, Jesus. He became literally in the Greek the prototype. That's what the word means. Like he sets the precedent by which we will all then experience a future resurrection. In John chapter 11, Jesus would declare, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he may die, he shall live. Building on this idea, Paul would write in Romans 6, verse 5, he says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, your life is possible after death. John then describes Jesus here as the ruler, or the commander, the chief, the leader, the first in rank, over the kings of the earth. You know, at the moment that this would have been read, and this grouping of seven churches, right? So the revelation gets sent, the pastor stands up, he opens the scroll, he begins to read. When, when, when this statement is made, that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth, that would have caught your attention a little bit, I would say. Like Domitian was on the throne in Rome, and was presently engaged in a systematic persecution of the church. And yet John here is affirming that nothing was happening on this earth apart from the approval of Jesus. You know, it's only natural that the existence of our present sufferings in light of the sovereignty of God leads many to question God's love. I'm suffering, God's in control. How do I rectify that with the fact that you also tell me you love me? Like, that's, that's an honest uh, assessment of things. That's an honest question, especially when you're really suffering. This is why John continues here. He says, to him, speaking of Jesus, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. John knew that after making the statement that, that Jesus was the ruler over the kings of the earth, his audience would be like, whoa, 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 what a, wait, wait, huh? Which is why he adds, to him who loved us. Like, how can you know for sure that Jesus loves you when you don't really feel his love? Like, how can you know? Well, in the moment of their present persecution, John, he points them back where? To the cross. You see, there's no greater proof of God's love for you than the fact that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. Like in his suffering and death on Mount Calvary, Jesus not only loved you, but he created a way for you to be washed from your sins. Like in the end, you have to ask, how do you measure the love of God? Where do you go? Your present circumstances or the cross of Calvary? And yet, <laughs> while that alone is an amazing idea please con consider what came first the loving or the washing you know, according to romans chapter 5 verse 8 we're told that god demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners christ died for us 
Like it's not only that God's love manifested itself towards us in the most radical way possible by Jesus laying down his life, but it happened when I was at my lowest. It happened while we were still sinners. Amazing. Jesus died knowing how messed up you were. He laid down his life knowing that you were a sinner. Knowing it was only through this process that you might be cleansed. Also notice what John says results from the washing. He says that Jesus has made us kings and priests. It's kind of an odd, <clears throat> an odd thing to say to the church. Mainly because the church doesn't have kings. <laughs> nor do we have priests in the, in the Old Testament classical sense. Like it's, it's kind of a, a weird thing to say to a church that didn't have those offices. In the Old Testament, the office of king was to be the, the, the physical, practical extension of God's authority over the people. That's why there was a king. As such, being kings means you and I possess a measure of authority to speak, to speak for and to represent God on this earth. Like for example, when we call out certain behaviors as being wicked, when we, when we look at things in the culture and we, and we say, that's wrong, when we make decisions based upon right and wrong, truth and falsehoods, and, and, and the secular world chimes in, mockingly saying, who gave you the authority to speak for God? The answer is, God did. Jesus loved me, and he washed me, and he made me a king to represent him, to speak in an authority. Again, relying on the Old Testament to help us understand these things, the office of priest, king and priest. The priest was God's original way, if you recall our series through Leviticus, of calling out, removing a group from the whole that were to model what a life of godliness was to practically look like. Now, a priest had all kinds of responsibilities. They would represent uh, the people before God and whatnot, but, but at its core, they were removed. The family of Aaron, the Levites, were removed from the people, and they were called out to live, to model, to demonstrate a life of godliness, a life of holiness, a life of consecration and sanctity. That's what you and I have been called to do here on this earth as Christians, as believers. We've been made priests to illustrate to this world what a real relationship with God was to look like. And we do that, by the way, like the priests. You're not going to find anywhere in the scriptures the priests saying anything. The priests' job were not to necessarily speak. That was the role of, of a king. It was also the role of a prophet. The prophet spoke for God. Priests were doers. They exemplified this life of godliness. They were a witness into the world, not by what they said, but by the way they lived, by what they did. We are kings and priests. Before I move on, and I don't want to get kind of into the, the, the minute details, but I, I think it is important. You know, John says that Jesus made us kings and priests. Like, you need to know that, that this status is not something that you earned. Like you didn't, you, you didn't earn the status of king or priest. Nor have you necessarily done anything to deserve it. You see, it's only through the work of Jesus, his love and washing, that you've become part of a kingdom, not of this earth, with a commission to live a life 
as a priest. Jesus made us, and he's making us into these things. The work is his, not mine. It's also important to note that in these verses, Jesus uses, John uses the word us to describe the work of Jesus. Did you notice that? Us, us. He's using this in the plural. And by using the plural tense, John is making it clear up front that he's speaking in this exhortation, in this description. He's speaking to all Christians and not just a few. It's plural. And the reason that's interesting is that John will not speak this way. He will not write this way. He will not use the word us again until Revelation 5, verse 9, where we're in a heavenly scene in the future. So he's talking to the church, to Christians, here, us, 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 us. Then he stops using the term, and he doesn't use it again until we're in heaven and the future. In verse 9, chapter 5, he says, They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and have made us, again, kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That'll all play itself out in the way the book gets broken down, but just something to keep note of. Us, 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 he stops. And then it's in heaven, in a future scene, he goes back to talking about us. Verse 7. Behold, he, again in context it's Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And that word amen, it, it means like, so be it. That's the truth. Seal it. Mark it down. Take it to the bank. I agree. In the book of Revelation, you will find this declaration. Behold, behold, behold. You'll find that 30 times. It's a predominant word. In the Greek, the term is designed to get the reader to set your mind on something. That's what the word behold means. It means, hey, let this consume your thoughts. Behold, chew on this. What thought? Jesus is coming. Behold, chew on it, think about it, let it marinate. Jesus is coming. While so much was happening in their world in the first century, John, right from the bat, he wanted the Christian family to be consumed, to have their thoughts consumed, not with their persecution, but Jesus is coming. Jesus was alive. And he went to heaven for a purpose, to better serve the church. But the day will come when Jesus will come. Now concerning the second coming of Jesus, John gives us some interesting details here. He's, he says that Jesus will be coming with clouds. Now there's no doubt that this refers to probably physical clouds. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 describing the same event. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So yes, there's there probably physical clouds. Jesus coming back, there's clouds. I actually think that this is probably something else, though. This description. That it's probably a reference of, in his coming, Jesus has company. That he's coming with the clouds, but the clouds speaking of the saints of God coming with Jesus in glory. Now, how, how do you... How can you conclude that, Zach? Well, following a chapter that's filled with the stories of various Old Testament saints, heroes of the faith, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, we also, so he's written about all these saints, men and women of faith. 
He says, since we are surrounded by what? So great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus is coming, but he's coming with the clouds. He's coming with you and I. John also describes here kind of the universal and public nature of Jesus' return. He says, every eye will see him. Contrary to what the Jehovah Witnesses say, Jesus' coming will be very public. It's not going to be done in secret. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now, with regard to whom this phrase, even they who pierced him, is referring, we turn to Zechariah chapter 12 for the answer. Let me read it for you. Again, speaking of the end, the second coming of Jesus, it shall be in that day, Zechariah writes, of the Lord speaking, I will seek to destroy all of the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then, note, they will look on me whom they pierce. Amazing, Zechariah is writing about the piercing of the Messiah before the crucifixion was even invented. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. It's worth pointing out how in Jesus' second coming, all of the tribes of the earth are going to mourn. Like when, when Jesus returns, it will not be, oh, happy day. There will be a mourning that will fill the earth. Israel will mourn, and we're told why, under the conviction that they pierced him that God had sent to save. There'll be a mourning of conviction, of weight. On the flip side, the unbelieving world will also be mourning. Why? Because in that moment, the reality that they had rejected Jesus and substitute for an antichrist is going to play out poorly for them. There will be mourning that, man, I got that one wrong. What I find interesting is, is in light of such a universal description of what will be on the earth during the second coming of Christ, this global reaction, it's hard to make sense, honestly, how it would apply to the church if we had been left on earth to endure the tribulation. Like, if the church was there for the tribulational period, yes, we understand why Israel would mourn, we understand why the unbelieving world would mourn, but if the church was left for these things, we would not be mourning. We would be cheering and celebrating. It would be a glorious thing. Jesus, finally, thank you, you're here. I think it continues to to validate, substantiate the fact that the church won't be here. As we turn to verse 8, the greeting of John gives way to another greeting, now given by Jesus. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the reference to the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The idea is that Jesus is the Word, the first and the last of the Word. He is the Word, the full revelation, the complete revelation of God. He says He's the beginning and the end. He is the one in whom all things originate and the one in whom all things will find a conclusion, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This title, the Almighty, is fascinating. Of the ten times that it's used in the New Testament, nine are in the book of Revelation. The only other time you'll find the title, The Almighty, in reference to Jesus, is in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Like in the Greek, the word, it means the one who has his hand on everything. That's what the word literally means, practically. 
the one who has his hand on everything, which clearly speaks of Jesus' sovereign control over everything happening. Again, a central idea, but a challenging one when it comes to this particular book. I also find it interesting and encouraging that Jesus describes himself as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Not only does this speak of Jesus' eternal nature, but it parallels what we read in Hebrews 13, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And why I find that so encouraging is that it speaks to Jesus' immutability, the fact that he doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is great because that means that his mind isn't changed about you ever. It's not as though Jesus, he saves you, you accept that, you start this relationship, he gets to know you a little bit, and it's like, yeah, I'm out. (laughs) He doesn't change. His perspective of you doesn't change. His thoughts towards you don't change. His love for you doesn't change. Like in the Christian experience, it's a great thing, but there is simply no such thing as buyer's remorse. Verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I mentioned this last Sunday, but John had been exiled to the island of Patmos after God had supernaturally preserved him from being boiled in oil. A terrible, brutal uh, execution. Patmos was is presently, still is, located in the Aegean Sea, right off the coast of Turkey. It was an island labor camp where inmates were forced to work in the rock quarries situated there. John refers to himself here as your brother and companion and the tribulation. Even being an apostle didn't immunize John from experiencing the same persecution everyone was experiencing. He says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom. Like their present circumstance didn't exempt their heavenly status. We're still part of a kingdom. And patience of Jesus. This word patience, it means uh, a steadfast waiting, enduring for Jesus. Or more than likely, Jesus' return. I'm your brother and companion in what you're going through and the kingdom that's coming and the king that that will arrive soon. It's a powerful statement. But don't miss the fact that John here attributes his experience as happening. Why? Well, we're told for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. From John's perspective, his persecution, his suffering, was not to be seen as a punishment for doing anything wrong. Instead, John saw his suffering, his trial, his tribulation as an opportunity to exemplify the power of Jesus and his word. Continuing his own account, verse 10, I was, John says, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying. Now, I should add that there's a little debate into what exactly is being described here in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's likely that John is saying that I was, it was Sunday, the Lord's day, and I was spending time with Jesus. I was in the Spirit. It was Sunday, I was in the Spirit. Yes, I'm, I'm on the island of Patmos. I'm in this labor camp, but Sunday rolled around, and I was spending time with Jesus. Could be. 
could also be that John is saying, maybe on Sunday, that he was captured into a spiritual state. I was in the Spirit. I became in the Spirit. Something supernaturally happened that took me into this future day of the Lord. The end. It's worth pointing out that John will use identical language at the beginning of chapter 4. Notice that John recalls how in such a moment, in the Spirit, he then heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now keep in mind, the loud voice was not a trumpet. It was as a trumpet. John's using figurative language. The reference of trumpet described the loud voice. You know, in ancient times, trumpets were used to call everyone to attention. Like, this caught my attention, John said. It was like a trumpet. There was a major announcement coming from the voice. Now, John, he tells us what the loud voice declares. Verse 11. This voice said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now we know from the similar greeting back in verse 8 that this voice is who? This voice is Jesus. We'll actually see this confirmed momentarily in the rest of the chapter. Keep in mind the commission here. Jesus reintroduces himself. The commission, John, what do I need you to do? I need you to write in a book all the things you're about to see. And then you need to take that book and send it where? To the seven churches that are in Asia. In the end, the final product here is the book of Revelation. Now we'll get into this more uh, next week. But the idea here of the seven churches seems to refer to more than just seven actual churches. It does. It refers to seven. But seven in biblical language is much broader than that. There's a, a reason it's seven beyond the literal. Seven, completion, lends the idea, again, we'll get to this more, that Jesus had a message, yes, for seven actual churches, but he had it for the church as a whole, not just in that day, but it's in entirety throughout history. Yeah, it's interesting that Paul also only wrote to seven churches. Jesus will write seven letters to seven churches. Paul wrote to only seven churches. Rome, Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, Ephesus, Galatia, and Colossae. And Paul, while he wrote an individual letter to a church, that letter intended to speak to all churches throughout all time. So here's this voice. John's in the spirit. Something happens spiritually. He hears this voice, this declaration. Now the voice is coming from behind, is what John says. So he can't see who's speaking. (laughs) That's about to change. Verse 12. Then I turned to see, or to inquire. I wanted to know who this voice was, the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded, about the chest with a gold band. In the tabernacle and later the temple, the sole source of light was provided by a single golden lamp. That lamp had seven branches. So it was one with seven branches. It was called the the menorah. Please note, that's not what John is seeing. Instead, we're told that he turns and he sees seven individual golden lampstands. He sees seven separate oil lamps. 
Now, it doesn't take very long for John's focus to shift from the scene to the one in the midst of the scene. He says, in the midst of the seven lampstands, there was one like the Son of Man. Now, right from the beginning, we find here an immediate and powerful link back to the prophecies of Daniel, who was the only prophet to refer to the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, using the title, the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man. You should also note, that was Jesus' favorite title to use of himself during his earthly ministry. Like, well, in the New Testament, you know that, that from Matthew to Jude, you have zero physical descriptions of Jesus provided? You have none. There is no physical description provided of Jesus at all, at any point in the New Testament, until you get here. Until you get here. And what's interesting about that is that what John will describe has incredible similarities to what Daniel saw and described. Two different places you can read these things on your own. In Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, he sees one like the Son of Man, and the description is identical to now what John is seeing. In his description of Jesus, he first notices that Jesus was clothed with this garment that went all the way down to the feet. And it was girded about the chest. So there was a chest plate with a, with, with a golden band, solid gold. Like Not only is this the similar attire of the Jewish high priest, so Jesus is engaged in some type of priestly activity, but having a solid gold breastplate indicates that Jesus was not just a normal high priest. <laughs> he was superior to all the high priests. And why do we know this? In Exodus 39, the breastplate worn by the Jewish high priest, it was only woven using golden thread. Jesus is solid gold. I mean, it's bling. John continues, verse 14, his hair, his head were white like wool, as white as snow. Again, it's not that his hair, and it's not snow. Like, again, descriptive language being used. They were white in color. And this imagery reinforces, obviously, Jesus' purity, his holiness, his righteousness. His eyes were like, like a flame of fire. Jesus didn't have fireballs in his eyes. What John is saying is that his, his gaze, his eyes, it was penetrating. There was power. There was authority. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. They were sturdy. Judgment. His voice, as the sound of many waters, indicating there was a strength and authority when he spoke. He had in his right hand seven stars. We'll get to that in a minute. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. His presence, his countenance was brilliant. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword so that it can pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In the Greek, this word double-edged sword that the author of Hebrews uses, it described a small dagger. Something that was used, yes, in combat, but for very precise cuts. In contrast, the word that John uses in this description of Jesus in verse 16, of a sharp two-edged sword, it's much different, actually. It's not a short blade. 
used for precise cuts. Instead, what John is describing is a gigantic battle axe, a two-edge battle axe uh, that was used in combat to just annihilate and destroy the enemy. Like if you're a Game of Thrones fan, one word describes needle, Arya's needle, while the other, Jon Snow's long claw. Like of the latter, like only the most skilled were able to wield such a blade in battle. In much the same way as the prophet Daniel and his experience. Daniel, seeing this, this individual, seeing Jesus falling down as if he were dead, John says, he says, and when I saw him, just like Daniel, I fell at his feet as dead. It's so funny to me when I hear people say, you know, when I get to heaven, like that Jesus and I, we're going to sit down and have a chat. Like, I guess I, I got some questions for him. Okay. Like that perspective lacks any type of biblical understanding of what it will be like to stand before the glorified Jesus. Uh, you won't be proud and haughty, and, and, and you will forget that you had questions. John says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the origin of it all and the final destination. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, again, think about it. I am alive forevermore. No doubt his resurrection. Amen. And then he adds, John, I have the keys of Hades and of death. He laid his right hand on me. Like what a moment that had to have been like for John to feel the loving touch of Jesus. Like additionally, like those initial words, what, what that must have sounded like, ringing in his ears. He's get, he, he's just, he sees, he turns this voice and he sees this. He's never seen Jesus like this. And he falls down as if he's dead. And he feels this loving touch. And then he hears these words. Do not be afraid. How that must have calmed the old man's trepidations. It's been 60 years since John has last heard Jesus speak. What a moment. John, it's okay. There's no need to be afraid. It's me. It's me. He reminds John that he lived and died and remains alive forevermore. But Jesus then says, John, I have the keys of Hades and of death. The idea of the keys. You know, if you, if you have the keys to something, it, it means that you have the authority and dominion rightfully over whatever the things the keys unlock. Like that's the idea. I have the keys, which means I have the authority, I have the dominion, I have the control over the two greatest enemies of humanity. Hades, judgment, and death. Regarding John's commission, Jesus gets more specific in verse 19. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. You know, critics often claim that the book of Revelation is confounding, it's confusing. Sadly, they miss the order. Like, you see, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that provides for you and I, the reader, an outline. Like, write three things, John. First, write the things which you have seen, which would be the revelation of the glorified Jesus here in chapter 1. Secondly, write the things which are, before finally, 
write the things which will take place after this or after the things which are. In the Greek, this phrase, after this, is metatauta. Like the reason that's significant and noteworthy is that Revelation chapter 4 begins. After these things, metatauta, it's the same word. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking to me. It says, come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. So we see this, this outline being, being put into motion. Chapter 1, John records the things he had seen, past tense, the glorified Christ. Chapter 4, it's obvious, opens the third section. Write the things which takes place after this. So it's only logical that between chapter 1 and chapter 4, chapters 2 and 3, these seven letters to seven churches present the second section of the outline. Write the things which are. Again, we'll unpack what that means and why it's important next Sunday. Jesus finishes the section by explaining to John what was likely mysterious. Verse 20, the mystery, Jesus says, of the seven stars which you saw in my right, my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are seven churches. Again, it's one of those things like you're reading through it and you're like, I don't know what that means. And then you just keep reading and Jesus is like, I know you don't know what that means. Let me tell you what that means. Like again, not confounding, not confusing. It's clear. Now, let me unpack this working backwards. John turns and he sees the voice behind him. He had noticed what? In his job as high priest, there were these seven golden lampstands. The challenge, though, for John in the moment was knowing what this meant because he lacked, he, he didn't have any type of Old Testament reference point. Again, this was not a menorah. This was something different, something he had never seen before, something the Old Testament wouldn't have clarified. So John, being a little confused, gains clarity by Jesus. The seven lampstands, I know you don't know what they mean. They're the seven churches that you've been commissioned to write this revelation and send it to. Aside from that, Jesus says, hey, these seven stars that were in my right hand, well, they're the angels of the seven churches. And, and don't allow the word angel to confuse you. In the Greek, it just means messenger, the messenger. Because of this, it's unlikely, just the way that each angel is placed over a church, that these are angelic beings and instead are, are likely the human representatives representatives of these churches they're likely the pastors that's what jesus is saying i have these seven these seven churches seven gold lampstands i had their pastors in my right hand it's kind of what the idea is and, and as we work our way through the letters in the, in the coming weeks that's really the only reasonable interpretation because again the, the word angel will be used and the letters to each church to reprove and to correct which would seem odd if it was an angelic being because an angelic being, there's, you can't rep, there's nothing to reprove or correct. So again, it just seems, it's a little wonky, it's true, but it seems as though it's the pastor of these churches. I, I want to just add one more thing. You see this word are, A-R-E, being used in verse 20, and that's not a coincidence. The seven stars are. The seven lampstands are. In the second section of the book, Jesus was clear to John what? To record the things which are. are. We're finding that word being used here, connecting the next two chapters to the second section. Um, the same word, it's obvious. 
seven letters present for us um, the things which are, which have to be fulfilled before future things, chapter 4. We'll get to it. Let me close very quickly. Only two men have ever been given such a revelation of the glorified Jesus. John and Daniel. Most interestingly, both men had been exiled from their homes at the time the vision had been given. Both men were under the thumb of wicked empires. Both men had experienced trials and persecutions and sufferings. Both men at the time were burdened with the future fate of God's people, wrestling with God's plan. It's not an accident that both men have the identical reaction. They fell down as dead in the presence of Jesus. Like, understand the reason that such a perspective of the glorified Jesus is provided for you and I is that when you see Jesus in this way, it should instantly place whatever's going on right now, your present affliction, or even your, your pressing questions, into a profound context. When I'm going through this and I see him, it should cause me to reevaluate how I see this. You see, knowing that Jesus is in our midst should encourage us to stand with strength. Like when we fail and blow it, we could fall back on what idea? Hey, Jesus is the faithful witness. God's reputation is not dependent upon me. It doesn't rest on my ability to be faithful, but his faithfulness. Once more, Jesus, you can remember that it is Jesus who is and who was and who is to come. His love for you is unchanging. That should be encouraging. And our fear of a growing opposition and hostility, we can hold fast to what knowledge? Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He holds in his hands the keys of Hades and of death. I have nothing to fear. When things seem to be spiraling out of control, you can fall back to the knowledge that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. If that king's name's Trump, or if that king's name's Biden, he is still the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the Almighty, the sovereign God, who has his hand on everything, including you and your life and what you're going through. Honestly, what is there to fear knowing that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, that He is alive forevermore? And behold, think about it. In your moment, He is coming soon. So Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. 